Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. My name is Jake. If uh, you're guest this morning, I'm the lead pastor of this church. And I want to begin this morning with a question, or actually a game, and it's going to be called uh, Christmas Opinions. Okay? Opinion number one Hallmark movies. What do you got? All in favor of Hallmark <laughs> Strong opinions. All in favor of Hallmark movies. Raise your hands. Don't be shy. It's okay. We just know who to boo here in a minute. Everybody who's like down with the Hallmark movies. Yeah? Uh, well, okay, people are willing to like throw out nasty things about Hallmark movies. When I call the question, nobody's going to raise their hand. They're afraid of being lynched by the Hallmark appreciators. Okay, how about uh, this? Die Hard. Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie? Christmas movie. Not a Christmas movie, anybody? Some, some, some people are like, are you kidding me? Uh, how about Elf? Christmas movie? Does it belong in the pantheon of Christmas movies? Are there people that I hear some no's out there? Huh? Along the lines of Die Hard and maybe Elf, how about Gremlins? <laughs> Where does that fit? Abe, you haven't even seen Gremlins. What are, you, what are you doing? It's like, yeah, Gremlins Christmas movie. No idea what I'm talking about. Sounds cool, though. <laughs> All right, what about Christmas music? Here's a question. Before or after Thanksgiving? Who says before? They got some, like, who's like... Year-round. I'm listening to Mariah Carey in June, July. Who's like, no, Thanksgiving until Christmas Day, and that's it. How far past Christmas are we allowed to go? Just Christmas Day. Anna's like, Christmas Day is it, and we are on to the next year. <laughs> it doesn't matter what comes next. The Christmas spirit is confined to Thanksgiving and December 25th. I think we know who Ebenezer Scrooge is. <laughs> What's amazing about all of this is that if I were to start asking everybody for the reasons behind your opinions about any of these things, whether it's diehard or Christmas music or whatever, we would quickly find that there are strong principles behind a lot of the opinions that we have. Many things in our lives are matters of preference, but we feel the need to justify our preferences with principles. And the stronger the principles beneath our preferences get, the more it becomes an issue of morality and an issue of conscience for us, and a point of judging other people. It's pretty to talk about that sort of thing when it comes to Hallmark movies, right? But I bet I can make a case, a moral case, that Hallmark movies are evil, and wrong, and we should never watch them. And then I bet I could turn around and make a case that Hallmark movies are really good and really great, and probably the only things we should watch at Christmas time. What do you want to bet? It can be done. You want to try it? Do you want to try it? This is team Hallmark movies are objectively evil. What do you got? They're all the same, so they're boring and unoriginal. What else you got? They give a false image. Okay, so how would you make the case they give a false image? You would say, well, they're sentimental, 
They lie about the evil of the world. They make redemption and love cheap and romantic and sentimental in a way that's just not really true to life and not real. That fundamentally denies, like what happens in every Hallmark movie. Like you got an hour and a half of people dressed up in July in suit, you know, in winter clothes, right? And sweating and pretending that it's cold. And then at the end of the movie, everything's great. We've fallen in love, the long lost brother or uncle or whoever is reunited and everything is perfect. And it all happened real easy and cheap and nobody had to feel bad about anything and nobody had to say they were sorry or confess any sin and there was no repentance and there was no reckoning with the evil of the world and it's just all superficial and light, cheap and easy. Bad, lies about the world, lies about God, lies about us, lies about relationships, lies about love, lies about Christmas. Have I convinced you? Because now I'm going to make the case that they're objectively good and probably the only good Christmas movies that exist. How would you do that? They're fairy tales. They're heartwarming fairy tales that actually tell the truth about redemption and reconciliation and love. You can't do that with depth in an hour and a half. But there are so many things at Christmas time that are cynical and jaded that pretend like there is no reconciliation and there is no hope and there is no love and there is no way to solve these problems. And okay, so fairy tales have light beats and they all tell the same story, but that's the same story that every movie tells, right? What's the difference between Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter? Both orphans being confined by their aunt and uncle who want to get out and change the world, but they're the chosen one. And so what, you change a wand for a lightsaber, it's the same story. It's the same story. Fairy tales are good. They're helpful. They teach us that love is real. Redemption is real. Reconciliation can happen. And so it's way better to watch a Hallmark movie than what was, you know, Christmas Slay, S-L-A-Y, you know. Okay. Now, whose opinion did I change? Answer, nobody's. Nobody's opinion was changed. Nobody's. What I did was I offended some people when I stood over here, and then I offended some people when I stood over here. But no opinions changed. Why? Our principles tend to match our preferences. And we build our principles as a case to justify the things that we like. But really, we're talking about matters of opinion. But they get deep down. They get a hold on our lives. They become a way that we judge other people, that we hold things over other people. And we can't separate now the principles we've created from the reality that actually these are just preferences. These are opinions. This morning, we've been studying Romans for over a year Instead of breaking for Advent, we've decided we're going to continue through Romans. And so we're in Romans 14, and we're going to talk about how to love each other when we have differing opinions and judgments, and when we're tempted to judge each other, okay? And we're going to talk about when those judgments or opinions or the liberties that we take with them can become harmful to our brothers and sisters. Okay, so let's get started. Romans 14, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Okay, so first things first, we're talking about food. That's cool. We're in Christmas season, fudge and cookies and figgy pudding and all that stuff, right? And eggnog. But we're actually talking about matters of opinion, matters of judgment, matters of conscience. And in context, Paul's talking about foods that are unclean or clean, which means what? Well, this is the early church. It's a mix of Jews and Gentiles. They're in the city of Rome. So it could be that we're talking about meat, food, sacrificed to idols, like we were talking about last week. But here we're more likely talking about foods that were restricted by God under Jewish dietary laws, okay? Any number of things that were part of what theologians call the ceremonial law, okay? So give me a minute to sort of set the stage here. We can understand what's going on. This will make sense of a lot of the, Old Te- or the New Testament. So here's the thing. God built a people, right? A nation, a kingdom from the children of Abraham. Okay, so far so good, right? We all have some idea of that. The nation was called Israel. It was built on the foundation of God's moral law. God's moral law is immutable, it's unchangeable, it's eternal, it's rooted and grounded in his character. It never changes, it's always the same. This, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, okay? Things rooted in God's character, things that don't change across time and space. But the nation of Israel was a nation, and that nation needed a culture, and that culture needed a civil government with a judicial law, and it needed a priestly government that taught the people about the holiness of God and the coming Savior, church and state, Okay? because you can't actually divide the two, no matter what anyone says. The judicial law is the application of God's moral law to society, to the nation. It's not simply do not murder, but if you murder, these are the consequences within the context of our society, okay? It's not simply do not commit adultery, but if you commit adultery, these are the consequences. And it's punishable by law within our society. This is what we call the power of the sword. And this is why Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 13, which we studied a couple weeks ago. Okay? The ceremonial law had to do with the sacrifices of the temple, the holiness of God, what separates the people of Israel as holy or unholy. It included dietary restrictions like you can't eat pork. Pork's not clean. You're to be holy and set apart and different from the surrounding nations. So you come all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus, and what happens? Well, the moral law doesn't change. But the people of God are no longer bound to the nation of Israel, which is this tiny little country, a quarter of the size of Indiana. Okay? Instead, they're given a mandate to go into all the nations and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything Jesus taught them, to cross borders and to cross cultures. So these cultures have their own states and their own churches, their own laws, their own rules, the Roman Empire and local governments and pagan temples and local deities. And so you're entering into all of these places. And that presented problems. That's what Romans 13 and 14 is really about. What do we do when we cross the borders of Israel and we have to deal with a law that is kind of godless? What do we do when we cross the borders of Israel and we have to deal with 
a culture where everything is just sort of centered around the pagan temple? Do we have to like try to impose the law of Moses? Do we have to like take down, you know, that tyrant Caesar and establish Mosaic law? We just like level the temple to, to Dionysus? Are we allowed to eat the meat sacrifice there or not? Like what do we do? How do we deal with this stuff? And so there are a lot of problems about that. You can't just walk up to the Senate or to Caesar and be like, sorry, Jesus has staked his claim on the nations. You're done. Leave. New law. You got to do that sort of thing over time. You got to work through the people and through the hearts of the people. So the judicial law is gone. Ceremonial law is gone too. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He's the great high priest. There's no temple. We're the temple. There are no sacrifices. He's the sacrifice. There's no priestly cult anymore. He's the great high priest. The things that distinguish Jews and Gentiles, they don't matter anymore. Like what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Because Jew and Gentile are one in Jesus now. Okay, but there was still a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion and a lot of tension in the New Testament church. And there were a lot of Jews who were like, actually... The, the, these Gentiles should be circumcised. And they need to adopt all our dietary laws and restrictions. And then there were Gentiles who were like, Gentiles were like, but we love bacon. Can we keep bacon? And, and then there were other Gentiles that were like, all right, yeah, I guess we got to get rid of bacon. I don't know. This is all new to us. Help us figure this out. And so here's what God did. God declared that all people who come to Jesus are clean, period. Jew or Gentile. And all foods are clean, period. And circumcision is over. And there's a whole church council about this. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to working through this. It's called the book of the, uh, to the Galatians, where they're fighting about this sort of thing. And Paul's helping them understand. But these themes pop up a lot in the New Testament because it was confusing it was a hard pill for people to swallow. Because you had these Jewish believers who felt like the apostles were diminishing the holiness of God, undermining God's law that had been in place for thousands of years. It afflicted their consciences. And you had these Gentiles who were eager to repent of their paganism and they wanted to be holy. And they were happy to adopt a bunch of new rules that made Christianity feel more like a conscientious, serious religion. Let's be honest. Is it easier to follow rules about what you eat and what you drink and call that holiness? Or is it easier to address the evils of your heart? What's easier and what's harder? It's way easier. It's way easier to worry about what goes into your mouth than what comes out of it, isn't it? It's way easier. It's way easier to, go, to worry about what goes into your belly than what comes out of your heart. So it's tempting to become a legalist or a Pharisee. It's easier to deal with the outside of the cup than the inside. It's easier to trade grace and freedom for law and slavery. And that's what was happening throughout the New Testament churches. But what happens when we do that, that means that we never deal with our hearts like Jesus taught us to. It means we end up being really close-fisted and tight about things we have no business being close-fisted about. We become our own version of Ebenezer Scrooge. 
Question, did Ebenezer Scrooge think he was a bad dude? He didn't. He did not. Ebenezer Scrooge thought he was a good person. He did. And he had his principles to justify his preferences at every step along the way. What do you think Ebenezer Scrooge saw when he looked in the mirror? He saw a man who was hardworking, who was industrious, who was frugal, who pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, who was thrifty. When it came to Christmas, he saw a man who had the integrity to reject the callow superficiality and sentimentality of a stupid materialistic holiday that was an excuse for people to get drunk and spend a bunch of money. When it came to the poor, he paid his taxes, and he didn't enable those people who didn't want to work like he had to work when he came from nothing. He was a man of principle, and those principles governed his life, and they ensured that he never had to think about or deal with his cold, callous, greedy heart. He didn't have to deal with his greed or his lack of love or his lack of generosity because he had a principle that justified and governed every single greedy, selfish decision he ever made. Aren't we all that way? So here we are, and Paul's saying, look, I know, I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Nothing. Unless you think it's unclean, then it's unclean for you. Okay, so we're not talking about matters of sin. Those places are clear, right? Adultery, clear. Murder, clear. We don't have to revisit that. We're not talking about places where God's drawn a line, but places where we draw our own lines. So, for instance, a glass of wine. It's not bad in and of itself. But for someone who is weak when it comes to alcohol, it might be good for them to say, for me, it's better to never touch a glass of wine. Where we go wrong is where? Where we take our personal lines and then we enforce them on other people. And say, you have to draw your lines where we draw our lines. What that does is it takes the evil of our own hearts and it externalizes them and places it on things, on objects. So now the evil is no longer in here, it's out there. It's not my drunkenness, it's the glass of wine itself. The wine is evil, not me. If alcohol can be abused, we need to get rid of alcohol. Alcohol is the problem. If money can be abused, we need to get rid of money. Money's the problem. If sex can be abused, we better get rid of marriage and take vows of celibacy. That's the problem. Since the body can be abused in any, any number of ways, the body itself and things themselves are fundamentally bad. We need to learn to detach entirely from our bodies in the physical world, and then you become Gnostics, which is an early Christian heresy because that's exactly what people were doing. Or you become Buddhists. It's a slippery slope. This kind of thinking ran rampant in the early church, and it runs rampant in streams of Christianity today, where we deny basic things, like God made the physical world for us to enjoy, and it's good. And the problem isn't the good gifts He's given us. It's not money or sex or alcohol. It's our hearts that are the problem. 
Was it the money that was Scrooge's problem? No. It was his greed. It was his heart. Even Dickens knew and understood that. Scrooge didn't, his turn wasn't, oh no, money is evil. His turn was, oh, my heart is cold and callous. And now I learned how to use my money for good and to serve others. So what's wrong with the world? It's us. It's me. It's you. It's our sinful hearts that take God's things and abuse them. It's not the things in themselves. We live in a world that's highly religious and highly legalistic, where we're trying to take away any good thing that can be misused. So here's an example. Baseball bat. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? It's just the thing, isn't it? Abe says it's a good thing. It's a good thing if I take you out and hit you ground balls. It's a good thing if you have it and you go and you hit a home run, right? Okay? But if I like Lucas's outfit and I got a baseball bat and I'm thinking about that jacket and I take that bat to his knees and take his jacket, then what? That's a bad thing. So is the bat the problem? I think the bat's the problem. Let's outlaw baseball bats. No? You know, you wouldn't like that. The bat's not the problem, is it? It's the person who misuses it. And we try to do this with all kinds of things, don't we? Like, for example, give me examples. Guns. What else? Just guns, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Knives. Okay, all right. We're on weapons right now. And bombs, yeah. What other weapons can you think of? <laughs> cell phones? Speech. Words. Stop. We're going to talk about words for a minute. We'll leave the swords alone. Okay, they're covered under the, under the Weapons Act. Words. Words can be misused. They can be used to hurt. Let's just kill free speech. How about money? I don't know that Elon Musk knows how to handle all those billions of dollars, so I think we just ought to vote them out of his pocket. This is part of what's wrong with America. We have a bunch of people who are convinced that evil resides in the system, that it resides in structures of power, that it resides in things like guns and words, and who are unable to grapple with the reality that evil resides actually in our hearts. So I think if we can just change the system or educate people or tear down structures of power or outlaw enough things, we can change the world for good. And there are people who sincerely believe that. And they're wrong. You can't change the world that way. You can, but not for good. Okay. Now, am I saying we need to not be wary of things that tempt us or things that we personally are prone to abuse? No. Oh. Abe can have a baseball bat. Maybe I just need to not have a baseball bat because I'm still looking at Lucas's jacket, right? <laughs> Got to draw my line somewhere. One of the ways that we address, sincerely address the evil of our own hearts is by addressing the temptations that we have and fleeing them and drawing good lines. That's a good thing to do. I'm just saying we always have to bear in mind where the real evil lies, and it's not in the smartphone. 
When we got a flip phone, we got rid of the smartphone. We put the smartphone out in the living room so it's not in the bedroom. It's not in the bottle of wine. It's not in the gun or in the baseball bat. Good to keep away anything from you that is a particular temptation to you. But it's the heart that's the issue. And the Pharisee, the legalist, is a person who has no self-control, no ability or will to govern his own heart, and so he tries to control every aspect of his environment. And then that extends to trying to control the people around him. He is the weak person that Paul talks about throughout Romans 14 and in other places in Scripture. He has weak faith, and he doesn't believe that God can grant self-control. So everything becomes about environmental control. He doesn't believe God can lead people, so he tries to control people. He doesn't believe that God can forgive sin, so he tries to ensure that he never does anything wrong. And so how does he do that? He has to deny his heart, and he has to constantly be redrawing the lines out there into something that he can actually live up to. He draws lines around things or objects that become objectively evil, certain foods, certain behaviors or activities. He redefines sin and makes it smaller rather than bigger. Right? I've said adultery and murder multiple times. What does Jesus say about those things? You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother in his heart has already committed murder. Jesus says it goes all the way down. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already done it in his heart. Holiness is bigger, not smaller. But we make it small so that we can hold on to it and then feel that we're a good person. We want to live in a state of perfect righteousness where we can acknowledge hypothetically that we're a sinner, but if you ask us to put a finger on any sin in our lives, we can't do it because it's all sort of hypothetical, abstract out there. It's not real. There's no real sin that I need to repent of. And I think that's a good thing, and I want that for you. And so let's just keep drawing the lines until we've defined sin in such a way that we can all sort of just live according to our own standard instead of God's standard, which is perfection. The Pharisee who thinks that way is out of touch with God's law. He's out of touch with the state of his own heart. It's because he's put himself in the place of God. And then he inserts himself into the lives of other people as God. That can happen in families, in churches, and in society at large. And what you get then is the Roman Empire or the nanny state. And here's what Paul's saying in Romans, chill out, relax. Let's not judge each other, let's love each other. Okay. There are lots of things that are matters of opinion or conscience. We talked about some of them last week and we drew a distinction between the things that are of primary importance that we have to believe and be willing to divide over. But there are other things and many, many other things and most of the things in our lives are matters of opinion and judgment. We're in the Christmas season and one thing we talked about last week is how some Christians don't believe we should celebrate Christmas at all because it's connected to the pagan holiday of Saturnalia or because we just shouldn't set any day aside as better than another day and celebrate, celebrate Christmas the whole year round. You're allowed to have that opinion. Even among those who do celebrate Christmas, there are other aspects of Christmas we might disagree over. Like what? 
Santa Claus. All Hallmark, <laughs> Hallmark movies. Let's talk about Santa for a minute, and I'll be careful, okay? Can Santa be a part of your Christmas celebration? Can he? There are people in this room who have very strong opinions and who would say no. What if I told you, though, do you know the story of Nicholas, St. Nicholas? What's the story? He was an orphan who inherited a ton of money. What else you got, Abe? You want to tell the story? What'd you say? He did punch someone. I'm going to get to that. <laughs> That's my favorite part. You kind of spoiled it for me. He, he was an orphan who became a bishop of a city, a Christian man, a godly city father, who used his wealth. He inherited a ton of money. And he used his wealth to be a blessing to the poor in his city. He gave gifts to kids. He paid the dowries of young women who had no way to get married. He was just a good city father. A good, good dude. And he also went to a council, a famous council, where there was a heretic there named Arius. Does anybody know who Arius is? Arius argued that Jesus was not divine that there was a time in which he was not, that he's not fully God, he never was. Maybe he became God or God-like. And, and Nicholas was on the floor at this huge church council arguing with Arius, and Arius was there just blaspheming Jesus. And Nicholas lost his cool and punched him in the mouth. And so that's St. Nicholas, and his day is December 6th. The church set aside a day to celebrate him. So if you want to have... Nicholas, be a part of your Christmas celebration by giving gifts and caring for the poor and punching heretics. <laughs> Who can argue with that? He's a hero. He's a hero. We need to bear with one another in our judgments and opinions and be patient and gracious. And not judge each other about things that are matters of opinion. And as we love each other, we need to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in each other's way. Okay, he's going to open up what that means, and so we're going to keep going. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So here's what he's saying. He's talking primarily to those who are strong, right? We've got the strong and the weak. We talked about that last week. And he's saying our goal in all that we do, even in our eating and drinking, should be love. Not our own pleasure and enjoyment, that goes for both sides on any matter of opinion. Are you strong? Do not destroy the weak with your liberty. But by the same token, do not let good things be spoken of as evil. Don't give up your ground. Bend to the weak, but don't give up the principle that it's not about food or drink, actually. Don't let the weak live under the delusion that the kingdom of God is a matter of eating and drinking. It's not. 
It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy. If you're weak and listening, understand the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. So let's pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. We need to be asking bigger and better questions than what are we free to do? What do we have the liberty to do? We need to be asking what makes for righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What builds up my brother? In another place in the New Testament, there's a church called Corinth. And Corinth was a mess. It was in a horrible place. If you go back and you read 1 Corinthians and look at the problems they're dealing with, you're going to ask, should we even call this church a church? But he does, and he deals with it. And they wrote Paul a bunch of questions like, is sex good? Can I have sex with anybody I want? Is marriage bad? Can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? Are we free to pretty much do whatever we want? And Paul spends like three chapters answering those questions. And then his summary comes down to this. These are actually all the wrong questions. I'm going to answer them, but let me tell you, they're the wrong questions to begin with. Because they're all about what you can get away with. They're all about what you can do. And instead of asking what's permissible, you should be asking what's beneficial. Instead of asking what you can get away with, you should be asking what's good and loving. How we frame questions of our freedom or liberty in Christ is everything. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, when it comes to food or drink, you can't eat and drink whatever you want. But you have to be convinced in your own mind. And there's an even bigger question beyond what you can do. And that's what's the loving thing to do. So there are levels to it. First, we love and we don't judge each other. But then we're mindful of each other's weaknesses. We don't want to mindlessly cause somebody to stumble because they're weak and they don't understand the freedom they have in Christ. And then there's another level, and that's that we don't leave the weak in their weakness. Because on the one hand, we have to be careful, right? If there's a new Christian and they're coming out of alcoholism and they see you drinking a glass of wine, that can be a real cause of stumbling. You understand? It can be a problem. But there's also a time and place to not let that weak brother think that their righteousness consists in whether or not they have a glass of wine. But it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's not about what we eat or what we drink. They're going to be tempted to make the thing evil and make the righteousness out there instead of in here. Now listen, I've kept it simple the last couple weeks by talking about alcohol. There are a lot, a lot of places besides alcohol and Christmas and Santa Claus, where we have, in Hallmark movies, where we have strong opinions and judgments, and the kinds of judgments that can threaten our unity and peace as a congregation. And the simplest way to think about that is to think about kids and how you raise them. How do you educate your kids? You have to make choices about these things. You have to have your preferences. Those preferences are going to come down to matters of principle, and because they're your kids, those principles are going to get really personal. And so public school, private school, home school become really personal matters of high principle and strong judgments that are kind of connected to our preferences. 
but they're principled preferences. Because it does matter how you educate your kids, right? It does. We got to be careful there, don't we? But anything with kids is fair game as far as that goes. You're going to bottle feed, you're going to breastfeed, you're going to have people fighting about that sort of thing and the righteousness of it. You're going to co-sleep, you're going to let your kids cry it out. Food, we may not get wrapped up about bacon or pork, but gluten or seed oils or sugar. We have to be able to live. We have to be able to make judgments and form opinions about things. And it's okay to have principles that guide that. We just have to understand what we're doing and live with one another in love. As we apply God's word to our lives, as we build a kingdom culture, we have to be able to distinguish between our culture and scripture. If we don't, we'll be robbed of joy. And our peace will be a false peace. And our righteousness will be a superficial righteousness. An external righteousness that dominates and dictates and controls our lives and tries to hammer a bunch of square pegs into the same one round hole that seeks uniformity instead of unity. But if we have a righteousness that's not our own, that comes from Jesus and what he's done for us, then we have peace with God and we can have peace with each other and then we can have real joy that allows us to have our disagreements about opinions without threatening anything about us. That's the kingdom of God. Because our relationship with God is secure and it's bought with the blood of Jesus and our peace with God is secure and so we don't need uniformity. We can have unity because we have Jesus. What's at stake when we allow our liberty or our legalism to rule in place of God's law of love? We risk destroying our brother or sister for whom Jesus died. And that is a much bigger sin. A much bigger sin. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here's what he's saying. People are more important than food and drink. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. People are more important than what you eat and what you drink. People are more important. People are more important than all the judgments you've made about things that aren't in Scripture. They really are. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more responsible, the more responsible you become not to have super strong opinions about absolutely every application of Scripture as it works deep down into the marrow of our bones. The more responsible you become to live in love for those who are weaker than you. To care for and love those around you. With matters of opinion, you have freedom, and that freedom is real, but you should not be using it all because you operate by a higher principle, and that principle is love. Because there are places in all of our lives where we're weak and we have to draw lines and protect ourselves and, and say no. And there are things in our lives that we ought to have that we say no to 
that we feel the freedom to do, but for sake of love for our brother or sister, not because we're weak, but because they are, we say no. Even though I feel absolute freedom to do this thing, I'm not going to do it because I'm more concerned about somebody else than me and my pleasure and my privilege. And there ought to be things in our lives that we feel absolute freedom to engage in publicly that we decide, I'm going to just keep that between me and God privately. No need to make a parade of my freedom when it could come at the expense of someone God's called me to love, someone Jesus died for. So, around the Christmas table, when Aunt Susie is slamming your favorite Hallmark movie, she has her opinions and her judgments. Be gracious. Be loving. Be tender. Don't pick a fight that you don't have to. She doesn't understand why a Blue Ridge Mountain Christmas is a masterpiece of holiday cheer. She doesn't need to. Maybe what's really going on is she's feeling hurt and sad and hopeless about Uncle Bob. So enjoy Christmas at Castle Heart at home, privately, and let it go. Whatever you do, just love each other. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You know that quote from Scripture, right? And whatever you do, whatever it is, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's from 1 Corinthians where he's talking about this exact sort of thing. And do it from faith because whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come here this morning to listen to the kids to worship together and to serve you. I pray that you would humble our hearts before you, that you would free us from our pride and from our judgments and help us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.